Meltface Productions. This is Listening Glass. Robin. Wow, man. Strong start. <laughs> That's, uh, you have correctly identified your co-host so far. Yes. <laughs> I, was, uh, I was waiting for like an affirmative of some kind. Oh, I see. But, uh, yeah. Yo, Arjuna. Yo, up? yo. What's up, Arjuna? Hey, hey. Nice. How's it going? It's good. All right, cool. Let's go. In the same room, recording a podcast. All right, so Robin, what percentage of the software that you use on a daily basis oh, God. <laughs> have you paid for? Ooh, have I paid for? Mm-hmm. It's actually hard to think of one that I've paid for. Mm, okay, that's telling. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, have you... I'm have like, you I'm racking my brain right now trying to think of anything I use that is something I've paid for. Because pretty much everything I use is like a free version of. Mm-hmm. And the stuff I... Would have had to have paid for. We're paid for by like previous employers and things like that. Okay, you know, like a fancy IDE um, mm-hmm. for doing code, uh, mm-hmm. like a code editor and things like that. We're paid for by companies or they had licenses or something. So, mm-hmm. I mean, how about like phone apps that cost you like a oh. dollar or something? There's a handful. Mm-hmm. Um, like I subscribed to Medium recently, but it's like not negligible it's probably five dollars worth per month of apps that i buy mm-hmm. something like that okay how about this you play video games yeah mm-hmm. and those cost you money the, those do mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. so most of those aren't free no so just that's like why a, they yeah yeah after like a quick assessment what do you, what would you say like 10 percent, 15 percent it's it's almost like i need percentage of time Mm. that is paid fair and you know it's split between like programming and watching like entertainment stuff and gaming i'd say maybe like a fifth of my time involves apps that i pay money for Mm -hmm. or software that i pay money for and and for, for that stuff is pretty cheap too right yeah so like yeah so for me it's I'm trying to think, you know, it's like I use an email client that I did pay for. Really? Yeah, because I just, I have so many email addresses and I needed some, like an old school, like centralized email client that I could get them all delivered to. Really? Mm-hmm. Yep. You I know. couldn't just have like all of them forwarded to like a certain Gmail address or something? That would have been a nightmare. Okay. You know, Gmail's good, but like it's not it's not that good. You okay. know what I mean? <laughs> I don't I don't I, I professionally haven't had to use my email hardly at all for like five years. Yeah. <laughs> I count myself very lucky in that respect. I would say between my personal email address, my various work emails, and my various emails for projects like this, mm-hmm. I probably have about twenty email oh addresses. My God. Yeah. So no. I've I've had to I've had to do a little streamlining over time, right? Wow. I have probably spent money on yeah, somewhere in the range of 10 to 20% of the software I currently use. Mm. And that's just kind of interesting, isn't it? Mhm. So, if you think about it, now there's some software for example like uh the software that came with your computer 
you you did pay for that in a way probably like uh you know the manufacturer who made your computer paid windows for their software for a license or um you know apple computer rolls in a certain amount of the price of your device to cover their software for the, costs. For the OS, you mean? Yeah, exactly. Um, I wonder, it's it's kind of gray with Windows now. I don't think, is Windows 10 still $100? I think you have to pay $100 to get just like the basic version. Yeah, you can't just like download no, Windows 10 there for was, free. You, the thing is you can download it for free, but there's certain features that are unavailable until you pay for it. And the, Yeah, the, and it's... It's it's illegal. To it's not use illegal. It. No, really. No, no. Uh, I don't think so. I think like because they they just disable certain features until you have an actual license. And the features that they disable is like the ability to change the desktop background desktop background in your theme, which is really trivial. <laughs> I <mean. laughs> I think that they do that to effectively limit it, but I think mm. it is actually not legal in the long run to use a version okay. of Windows that you or your computer for the terms of service. Okay. Yeah, didn't pay for. I'm pretty okay. sure. Yeah, yeah. But you know, things things could have changed. Mm-hmm. But you know, what I'm getting at here is that we live in this modern digital era, and every piece of of digital hardware that we use requires software to run mm-hmm. and you are a professional software developer for a living yeah and can you just share with the class how much work <laughs> does it take to make functioning software way too much <laughs> like we're talking like thousands of human hours yeah. to produce like even simple software right right yeah yeah, it takes. It, I mean, it's just a. It's a cliche in the industry that any time that you start a project or you, you're starting on a feature, the amount of time you think it's going to take, you just take that and double it. And I usually take it and double, like, do a factor of two point five, and that's pretty close to how much time it actually takes to do it. And that's mm-hmm. for people who are used to guessing how long this stuff takes. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but it, it's a lot of effort for sure. Yep. Totally. Typically. Especially if, if you're writing something from scratch, which, I mean, we, we rarely are software developers writing everything involved in their project from scratch, mm-hmm. thanks mostly to open source software, mm-hmm. and that coders make their code available to other developers to save them time. <laughs> right, right. So, so, yeah, so even paid software is often developed, like, off of the bootstrapping of free software yeah i when i first started with web development i didn't know what i was doing and so what i would do is i would just start writing html and start writing some javascript and start writing some css and just started doing everything from scratch Mm. and now what i'll do is i'll use a command line tool that'll basically bootstrap a project for me and and create kind of this like file architecture and and import a whole bunch of different modules and libraries that I can use for my project, say for a web development project, if I want to make yeah. a web app. And the cumulative like storage involved and, and all of that stuff, I can just run a, a single line command to bootstrap the project and get this stuff. And once I've installed it all, it's like half a gigabyte of uh, worth of programs. <laughs> And that would have taken you like I would never I would in my whole life would never write all of that. 
by yourself. No. Yeah. So it's just, I think that this is fascinating. And I think that so much of this is happening under the radar of everyday life. And Mm -hmm. I think that so many users are using free software every day without realizing it. Mm Mm-hmm. And I just think that that's really interesting. Mm -hmm. And so what we're going to talk about today is we're going to go into just a brief history of software and the the free software movement. Mm -hmm. And we're going to discuss the implications of it. And and I'm curious if we'll talk beyond the envelope of software and just about open source technology in general, general, right? Because it goes much... I was thinking initially just about software as well, but it's mm-hmm. much broader than that. Yeah, that's actually, that's a really good point. Yeah. So we can definitely talk about that. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot to cover here. We're not going to go super deep on the technicalities of it. Mm-hmm. Probably um, better. <laughs> yeah, right, right? <laughs> yeah. So, and as much to uh, preserve your wakefulness as a listener as anything else, because mm-hmm. <laughs> it gets pretty technical and not everyone wants to get into the details. So the first thing that I want to talk about is what does the word free actually mean? Mm. Right? Yeah. Because this is because the amount that you paid for a software is only part of how free it was. Mm-hmm. So there's this saying in the software world, people make this distinction, free is in beer and free is in speech. Right. So Robin, what what does free is in beer mean? Free means you didn't pay for it. You didn't pay for it. Yeah. You didn't shell out your money mm-hmm. to purchase the software. So how about freeze and speech? What does that mean? No restrictions on what you can do with it, right? Mm-hmm. So it's, it's about your ability to, to use that tool or method in whatever way you see fit, basically. Mm-hmm. What we're talking about here with freeze and speech, we're essentially talking about intellectual property. Mm-hmm. And so this is what happens is just like so many other things that people make from their effort and from their ideas Mm -hmm. and that involves some kind of creativity, software is, it's a product, it's an intellectual product Mm -hmm. and an intellectual property. And so when you sit down and you write some code, Mm -hmm. that belongs to you. And actually, this is an interesting little legal tidbit is that Copyright law around the world generally holds that if you were to just sit down and write some software in an afternoon, that's automatically copyrighted to you. Really? Yes. Yes. And if anyone were to take that software and modify it and do some other stuff with it, you in in most places in the world would have the authority to take them to court. Wow. And you'd have a pretty strong case against them. Huh. So it's a, it's a little bit like, but what it what if they like took the code from me or found like, but if I if I put my code on the internet without any sort of license and somebody used it is a bad idea. Yeah, uh, for them oh. to to use it. Okay, be- because so yeah, this is interesting. We'll mm-hmm. talk about licenses in a little while. Yeah, but but yes, copyright law would protect your right to take those people to court. Okay. And here's an interesting thing. If you put your software up on the internet and you said, this is free, do whatever you want with it. Mm-hmm. Have your way with this software. Have fun. If that was the note, mm-hmm. buy it. You would still legally be able to take those people to court if they did anything mm. with your software. I actually like that. Mm. I prefer that 
the default is to protect creators mm. and and to give them proprietorship or ownership of of what they've created and and the ability to decide who can do what with it mm. by default. Mm-hmm. And if they want to say legally that this is in fact open to you and you can do whatever you want with it, that it's not terribly difficult to do so, right? Yeah. Um, and they can do that, right? Mm-hmm. But because it, I, I do think it's always a sad story when someone creates something and then it gets kind of snuck out, like gnashed out from under them. Yeah. And I feel like that's kind of a tale, you know, that's a, seems like a common tale and, and the history of creative people and whatnot. That, and I don't know how true that is, but, you know. I agree. Well, and it, it gets really into the fundamentals of, of whatever your society's philosophies and ideas are around ownership, mm-hmm. right? So there are bleeding heart people in the open source and free software communities and not not just in those communities either but there are there are people in the general creative communities who feel that everything should be free mm-hmm. right whether it's a song that you wrote a book that you wrote mm. maybe a piece of art that you made yeah people have this idea that this just you know art and creation belongs to everyone and should be available to everyone to use modify etc as you choose now i'm not i'm not saying that i particularly defend this notion Uh but that is it's it's a line of thinking out there right something to the effect of people nobody should be able to own an idea Mm. nobody should be able to own a creative property what do you think about that yeah uh well like music (laughs) is music an idea you know, like yeah, if I base. go out and write a song mm-hmm. and compose it with three other people, is that an idea that is, you know, I, you could think of it at its core as a kind of like mental phenomenon mm-hmm. or it can be abstracted away as a mm-hmm. mental phenomenon, but it's still something that some group of people created mm-hmm. that, and that no one else did and nobody else would have, mm. right? Typically. I mean, there's some pop songs out there that I don't know. Maybe, maybe some multiple people actually did create at the same time, given how formulaic they are. But probably not, even with that mm-hmm, like very mm-hmm. formulaic stuff. Like this stuff isn't repeated. And I guess I do have a sort of individualistic mentality mm. about that, where credit is is due, you know, mm-hmm. to the person who did actually create it, right, um, and not just someone who found it and appreciated it, right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think it's just good to acknowledge coming into it that you have that viewpoint. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I'm hoping that people will get out of listening to this show is to really examine their own ideas about ownership. Yeah. And what should be considered a private thing that you own versus what shouldn't. Right. And yeah. Now, I think there still is a lot of virtue in being generous with things that we create and allowing Mm. people to have access to them Mm -hmm. and to have rights to modify them. Mm -hmm. Um, So, and, but I think that should ultimately be up to the people, the creator. Right. Yeah. So yeah, it should, the the choice should start with the person who made it. Mm -hmm. I think in the context of the paradigm that we live in, in the context of this modern notion of ownership 
as it is generally practiced in the world. I would agree with you. I think that that's mm-hmm. a very reasonable place to start.、Mm-hmm. I think it's reasonable to say, so and so wrote this book, and someone else shouldn't be able to just plagiarize it and make money off of it. Well, because or- here's what's going to happen、mm. is let's say I, you wrote a book,、mm-hmm. and it's a good book, and you publish it through some shoelace you know, publisher. That's regional, and they、mm-hmm. just don't have a lot of clout and ability to kind of like p- produ-、uh, promote it.、Mm-hmm. And then somebody with a lot more resources than you finds it and says, oh, wait, this could actually be a big thing. And they throw a little bit of capital at it and a、mm-hmm. little bit of money, and they have a little more clout and all of this. And suddenly it's a big hit, but under their name and with their publisher.、Mm-hmm. And that's exactly the kind of stuff that happens, right? Right. So I, th- I think that. I see this as actual protections for、um, people who wouldn't have resources to kind of fight that and, and,、right. and to start something and actually keep their name tied to it. Right. Yeah. Well, and I think that that acknowledges the reality that we live in a system which has inequality, economic inequality at its base.、Mm-hmm. So I think it would be less of an issue if everyone was. Taken care of about the same amount. Right. Right. Then the <laughs>、yeah. question of who is profiting off of something would be a lot less relevant.、Mm-hmm. And which isn't to say, you know, and, and again, it's like it's interesting because we're talking about the difference between beer and speech,、mm. right? So even if someone did live in some kind of a、uh, monetarily equitable culture where everyone was given the same amount of basic resources. Yeah. That might still, people might take issue with someone saying, Oh, I came up with that idea, right?、Mm. Or like, I, I made that song. Someone well, else might say, it, like, Hey, yeah, that, but yeah. it was my brainchild. Yeah. And I want to get credit for having been the person who actually created this,、yeah. right? Yeah. So it's, it's, it's not, not just about I mean, the money. There's been times where I can't even remember a specific example, but I say I had an idea. And then a friend of mine later was like, Oh, yeah, you know, I, I had this idea that I'm going to do this thing. And then, like, they, they're saying this to like a group of friends that we're with.、Yeah. And I clearly remember that, like, pitching the idea to them. <laughs> and, and I just remember being really kind of like, like bothered by you it. You bastard. Like, and we weren't going to, this wasn't something we were going to make money off of or anything.、Sure. It was just like a project we were going to work on. Yeah. And I, it, so what I'm getting at is that. Money is one thing, but also identity and status is another yeah. thing yeah. that is, are also important.、Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not a, a selfless Buddha creature <laughs> that、mm-hmm. doesn't care at all about you know, being recognized in the world. you know?、Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think I, think I, I, I realize how kind of like, I, and I don't mean this in a bad way, but like deep individualism is kind of just like a virtue. Mm-hmm. In myself,、mm-hmm. right? That I more or less own.、Um, so, yeah.、Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that that's fairly common. I think most people have some amount of it,、mm-hmm. right? And, and I do think that the people who advocate for the most freedom in regards to speech and beer tend to be like、um, extremists. Right. Well, and I, here's a perspective where I could understand it、mm. is that. If you're thinking about 
Well, like I tried to make a montage, a video montage a couple years back when we were doing the PUBG podcast. Yeah. And I put some like Beastie Boys or something along Mm -hmm. to it and I threw it up on YouTube and YouTube immediately said, you know, you can't put this up here because it has copyrighted material. Yeah. And I was kind of pissed off. (laughs) Right. I was like, but like this is... Like, everyone knows this Beastie Boys song. Everyone knows it's the Beastie Boys. No, yeah. Nobody's going to think I created this. Yeah. But the video content I did create, and I, I just wanted to be able to share it in this way that would have, like, good musical backdrop, right? And right. so, I'm not, I'm, I don't know if I'm going to say that I should have been able to do that. Mm-hmm. Because I don't really know exactly where I stand on that. I think mm-hmm. I should have been able to just post it and credit the Beastie Boys at the end of the day. Yeah. Um, but. Anyway, um, I think where people are coming from is that they see a lot of really valuable resources that are tied up in proprietary companies, right? Or companies that claim copyright Mm -hmm. on them and that could actually benefit society greatly Mm. if they were made available. And so, like, music, you know, who knows? I'm not really going to make a case that having access to the Beastie Boys is going to, like, make me great video maker and change the world or whatever but there's cases to be made uh i think a really interesting case is um medical technology i was just gonna say Mm -hmm. like like the conversation becomes different when we're talking about things that people generally consider as necessities yeah right Mm -hmm. so yeah exactly medicine Mm-hmm. Um, or even just something simple like maybe how to dig a well, right? It's like mm. if someone comes up with a really good way ah. to to create something that people generally need. Right. And then they hoard it and try to profit off of it. Right. You know, something like that. Well, so like the capitalist argument is that we should do that because we then incentivize innovation. Sure. Right? Like no one's going to spend years researching how to make the best well. Mm-hmm. if they're not going to get any profit off of it, right? Mm, so, mm-hmm. so the thinking goes. Uh, some people right. will, maybe, but a lot of people won't, right? Mm-hmm. And I think there is an argument for that I, that I can kind of understand. Um, but when it comes to medical technology, especially given the medical industry in our country and how much profiteering there is. Oh, I mean, it's and insane. Looking in the at US. the way prices are, are rigged, really. Yeah. Um, it's ridiculous. And mm-hmm. and if people did have more access, especially to biotech stuff, mm-hmm. what one case I looked into was um, this kind of automated pancreas mm. device for people with type one diabetes. Okay, which is really cool. So ba- the basic idea, and this there's it's this open source project where I just read a bit about it, and the basic idea is that you have a um, glucose monitor. That's attached to your body. So it's, I was kind of checking in maybe every five minutes or so on the glucose levels in your blood. Mm. And and the other component is an insulin injector. And so you have this little module that's sensing, having, has sensors and determines what your glucose level is. And if you need insulin, it'll inject insulin in you automatically. Mm, Okay. Right. And the people who created this were, they were basically saying, look, the FDA regulations on and all the companies who are creating it or trying to do stuff like this or t- taking way too long and the devices that are out there now aren't very good. Mm. 
and we could probably just do it ourselves. So they did it themselves and they made the whole thing open source. And my understanding is that you can basically go look at their device plans. And I don't know what the exact steps are. If it's just like, here's how to make the thing, if they give you kind of a recipe to make it on your own, mm -hmm. or if they tell you what to buy and how to piece things together, but that it's, it's considered an open source project mm -hmm. and that people can modify and, the, and they describe in plain English, which isn't common in the coding world, how the, um, what, the, what the logic is behind the program in terms okay. of sensing and when to dose insulin and things like that. Sure. Um, so it's like a, a human readable layer. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Which yeah. I, I think ethically makes a lot of sense sure. for, I, I applaud them for doing that. Mm -hmm. I don't know if they're just taking their own personal time to make that happen, but a lot of people um, certainly are, right? Mm -hmm. I, I doubt very many people involved with that project are getting paid, but maybe they started a foundation or something to kind of like boost sure. it along. Who knows? Yeah, sure. But, um, so before we get too much further, yeah. why don't you help us to understand, you've been using this term open source. Mm. So for those who are not familiar with this term, what does it mean? Okay. So the way I think of open source is that whoever develops a piece of, let's just say software, to mm -hmm. make it simple, there's mm -hmm. other things that could be open source attaches a license to that software that says that here's all of the source code that makes this thing work, mm -hmm. right? And not only can you read that source code, mm -hmm. but you can also change it because maybe it's almost what you need as a tool for your own project, but mm -hmm. you need to modify it a little bit. So go ahead and modify it. You can then, after you modify it, redistribute it to other people. Mm-hmm. And the, I think the really cool thing about it is that the license dictates that once you redistribute it, anyone else who uses it or modifies it for their own purposes has to redistribute it under that same license. Mm, okay. Yep. And that's the kind of magic part. So and, it's enforced generosity, right? It's, it's like yep. if you're going to use this, yep. then you have to let others use the changes that you make to yep. it. Now... That doesn't mean you can't charge for your people using it, mm -hmm. which I think is kind of cool. Mm -hmm. So you and I could go out and we could take hundreds of open source projects and put them together in some really cool new social media app or whatever, right? which isn't going to happen, but uh, whatever tool you want to think of, right? Yeah. And um, we can charge people money to use it, right? Mm -hmm. Even though we're using code that a bunch of other people wrote and gave to us freely, mm -hmm. we can charge money for it. Mm -hmm. and but so could anyone else right they could right. create if if we could do it so could other people right right and so something you're highlighting here is the distinction between source code and and effective code right mm -hmm. so let's just unpack that a little bit because i think some people aren't familiar with how software is developed okay. most of the time right so the the program that runs on your computer or on your phone or whatever is very very different than the code that was written to create it correct so yeah. so i think a lot of people think that a computer program is like you know it's this book of information it's just you know thousands of lines of, mm -hmm. of 
you know, characters that create the code. And then I think a lot of people think that you just plug that into whatever operating system you're using and it just reads through those lines of code dynamically right. when you're using right, the software. Right, and right. that's actually not what, what happens a vast majority of the time. Well, it never happens because computers don't read human language at all. <laughs> right, right. So right. It's, it, it always has to be interpreted by something. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. So that's what's cool. It's 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 kind of hard as a programmer. I try to think about it as little as I can because <laughs> okay, <laughs> because you know when we write programs, we're writing statements like if blah blah blah, then do blah blah blah. You mm-hmm. know, and just as kind of like very human readable stuff, right? And the computer doesn't actually. What when I say the computer, what I mean is the processor. Mm-hmm. right and the hardware and the mm-hmm. hardware is just a bunch of machinery that runs mm-hmm. on electricity and it has a bunch of basically gates that and switches that are open or closed mm-hmm. and that stuff all relies on just voltage running through it and that stuff's all one and zero so when you mm-hmm. when i say open source what i mean is that it's the source code so i'm going to write human legible source code say in javascript right and then it's actually an interpreted language, but um, at the end of the day, that language is broken down by the computer into ones and zeros that the machinery can execute. Right. It's instruction set that the machine can execute. And, and then and yeah. there's an intermediate step there, which is compiling, right? So I think that that's, that's something that makes the distinction between free and open source matter, I think. because. Okay, so so what happens is you'll write some code and then you will compile that code and and what a compiler does is it takes that human readable code and it translates it into what they call binaries. Mm-hmm. And that's basically a lot closer to the ones and zeros that the processor is going to be mm-hmm. running, right? Mm-hmm. And so what you have is the the code that was written by Robin, for example, is perhaps you could think of it as the blueprint. And maybe it's like, imagine you're making a car, right? So the, the source code would be the blueprint for the car. And then the, the compiler mm-hmm. is like the factory that makes the car, right? It takes mm-hmm. that blueprint and it translates the blueprint via these mechanisms into molding the material which ends up being a car right Right. so then the software is the car and so if you are free to use your car however you want to that's one kind of you're saying the software is the car yes see i would say the car is the program running sure that could be right in a way Mm -hmm. because the source code to me is all of the knowledge and expertise and and mechanization that goes into the manufacture of that car. Sure. Right? Mm-hmm. And the actual car is more like, if I played a video game, it's the, watching the video game unfold. But that doesn't mean I know the code, right? Well, that's just the distinction I want to make, is yeah. that if you take a piece of software, just, you know, like, let's say you download Firefox, right? Uh-huh. You cannot take that binary that you downloaded mm-hmm. and look at the source code. No. And so that's what makes a, some of these distinctions matter, right? Yeah. Is that some licenses say 
you can do whatever you want with that Firefox binary that you downloaded. Okay. But you do not have access to the source code. Right. And so that's, that's very different because in one thing, it's a bit more about use, how you use it, right? And in another, it's like actually having access to the DNA and right. being able to make fundamental changes. I was trying to think of other examples of things that are just kind of innately open source, mm-hmm. right? Like, let's say I wanted to remix a Radiohead song. Sure. Like, I don't have the master tracks for the Radiohead song. Exactly. Which the, would basically be the source code, the right? The original recordings. Yep. Yep. And I, I don't have, like, the mix of that, and I don't have the different tracks that I could play with. So in exactly. order in order for me to do anything with the Radiohead song, I basically have to reverse engineer the whole thing, right? And, or, and, or just pull out chunks of the finished product and try to make those work. Right. Which but is a lot harder. Way harder, because it's, it's all muddled together as you, one yeah, sound wave. You can't just pull a voice out, no. you know? Or at least it's very hard, and you lose a lot when yeah. you try to do that. So, but one thing I... I I think someone else brought this up to me was um, a p- plays. So it's, um, plays, if you write, do mm, a, a... Sure. I ch- keep wanting to say screenplay. Well, what do you... This is a script for a play. It's like a stage play. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That basically it's just lines and a little bit of words describing a scene and scene changes and things like that. And that's pretty much all there is to it, right? Yeah. And then you... Everyone has their own liberty about how they implement, you know, the props and do transitions and I see stuff what like you mean. that. So, like, so by nature, a stage play is open source. Yeah. Because even from the very beginning, people were always interpreting what that play, how it was supposed to be executed, right? Now, that's interesting, though, because your average play, you can't then take it as it is written and modify it and then call it your own and profit from it, right? No, probably not. However, the source is there. (laughs) Yeah. But, like, legally, you're right. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But most things we don't even have the source to, That's That's a good point. If I wanted to make my own version of the movie Avatar, Mm -hmm. that movie's, like, all CG, and it's mostly code at the end of the day, probably, or, or it ends up being. And yet... There's no way, you know, I would be able to recreate that based on the finished product, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I was just thought that was interesting. Yeah, yeah. There's not a lot of things that are just out there for you to take and modify to be your own. Correct. Mm-hmm. So I think that this is, this is part of what makes this conversation so interesting is that different projects allow people different levels of access and different amounts of rights for what they can do with the things that they do have access to. Mm-hmm. And um, so, and I'm just going to, because we're talking about licenses, I'm going to cover this briefly. Um, there, there are many, 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 many different licenses that you can apply to intellectual property in general. Mm. And even the world of software has, you know, hundreds, if not thousands, yeah. if not more than thousands of different licenses, Yeah, right? And um, so when you hear people talking about free software, they'll often refer to this kind of laundry list of the most common licenses that you'll see. Those include the Apache license, 
that is the GPL, mm -hmm. which is a big one. You have the BSD license, which we're going to talk about in, in a little while here. You have the CPL, the Common Public License. You have the MIT license, mm -hmm. of course, developed by the university. And so what you're able to do with any given, whether it's a piece of software or a creative product or whatever, is very, very specifically spelled out in the license. And you'll see this, you know, whether it's software or a lot of people release other things, like they'll release creative works under a certain license. Mm. And so you can, for example, there are plenty of people who have written a play that they release under, under a certain kind of a license, which does let somebody else mm. take that yeah. and rewrite the play if yeah. they wanted to. And maybe sell tickets to see that play okay. and not have to pay royalties or not have to give a damn about it. Right. right. So yeah, there's a, there's a lot of nuance to this and chances are if you have an idea about how you want to share something and the levels of access that you want to give people mm -hmm. and the stipulations on where someone can and can't make money from it. Mm -hmm. Chances are that there is an existing license, which has been, you know, thoroughly like vetted in court. Yeah. It's really interesting to think about. I, I'm thinking, I mentioned Radiohead earlier and they had an album Several about over a decade ago now called In Rainbows. Oh, Do you yeah. remember that? Yeah, which was like semi free as in beer, right? Yes, exactly. Yeah. Free as in beer, right? Yeah. So it was it's called quote unquote the free album, right? Mm -hmm. And they just released it on their website and you could just pay what you wanted. And you could pay zero if you wanted, and then yeah. you could download the album. And I was I'm a big fan, so I like paid whatever I thought like a album price was, like twelve sure. or fifteen dollars or something like that. Yeah. But what would be really interesting is if a band released master tracks, right? Or is that what you would call it? Is this, you know, you're more of the sound engineer. Yeah. Um, well, well, it, it would be, what the, would I mean? yeah, it would probably be like the, the mix tracks. Yeah. The Mas mix, masters okay. generally tend to refer to the track that's already been combined. Okay. But yeah, it's like this, this, yeah, the mix tracks. Yeah. The I want like, tracks. I want the vocal track. I mm -hmm. want the drums. I want, mm -hmm. and there's probably like 20 of them per song, if not more. Yeah. Of different track layers that I could like go in and edit and change and make my own remix. And that's like, that's what remix artists do typically, right? Is they'll request from the artist, they'll say, Hey, I want right. to remix your song. You know, I'm a great remix artist. And then the artist will grant them access right. to a particular track and then they'll make a remix. And, I just think that'd be really. I don't. I wonder if there's a lot of songs out there that are actually available that are popular. Or no, people have done it, tracks. and it's mm -hmm. interesting you mentioned the Beastie Boys because they did a thing. I, mean, I don't remember what track it was, but they took like a very well-known Beastie Boys track, really, and they did. They released like the individual tracks, and it was a. It was like it was some kind of publicity stunt. They wanted people to remix it, and they yeah. had like a contest, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, but it, it was a cool thing that they did, and uh -huh. it was an example of. I think it's a good idea. I, I think it know. is. Well, and it's, okay, so here's the interesting thing: hip hop is especially interesting hmm. because the majority of hip hop is created from other people's sampled works, right? And so. I think that there's a fundamental irony to your not being able to use a Beastie Boys track on your video, 
Given the fact that most Beastie Boys tracks themselves are comprised of multiple other people's musical uh, tracks, right? Huh. So, it's so here's a question. Very interesting. Let's say one of the items that they sampled was under a certain very open, permissive license. Sure. My, I guess my question like, <laughs> is like, use that part of it. Is that your question? If they if they use that part of it, does that then require the Beastie Boys make their own track that they use it in? accessible you know yeah yeah um that you know that's interesting you could like stealth open source someone's music by <laughs> slipping your license in there <laughs> that's hilarious you have a free sample GPL. yeah yeah exactly <laughs> so no, i wonder about that i mean because there's a lot of software projects that will have gpl components or general public license components which yeah. means that but that's not the product itself right yeah. so they're using an open source tool to make a software product yeah but that doesn't in turn make the whole software product open source you know it doesn't yeah. inherit that license only if they just kind of modify that little module and redistribute that module does it have to be open source exactly um, so yeah I, weird it all gets very technical, and like so many things with law, the devils are really in the details, right? Mm -hmm. But I just think I like the idea that that laws have been tailored around all of these different particular use cases that you might have and you might want. And I like the idea that it's like there's a framework already created to support people who want to do this mm -hmm. right and and things that protect them so like for example uh, an example of a legal protection you might want to have in a license that is free is i released this version of this software if someone takes it and modifies it in a nefarious way right if someone takes my software and uses it for terrorism mm-hmm I don't want for that to come back to me. Okay. Right? So that might be an example of like, you know, you're like, you can do whatever you want with this. Yeah. But I'm not taking legal responsibility for what you do with it. Right. And if you didn't have that specified in your license, you could end up in some hot water. Well, what's interesting about open source, at least the the kind of ethos of it and there was a kind of nine point definition i remember seeing in um what's it called os revolution the documentary mm, on mm -hmm. um linux yeah and also on the free software foundation free software mm. movement right where i remember one of the points was basically anyone who used the software and redistributed it couldn't discriminate against who used it Mm, interesting and they couldn't discriminate against the types of purposes it was used for mm -hmm. right and so their the example that they used was if you modified some say client management software you couldn't then say that anyone that uses it couldn't use it at an abortion clinic mm, and right. you, you couldn't you also could not say that um, anti-abortion people couldn't use it either basically right. anyone terrorist included for mm -hmm. whatever purpose they would use that for, could use it. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, it, it gets interesting and it, it gets complicated. And actually, so I'm glad that you brought this up because I did want to cover just a little bit of the history of, of software and the free software movement because I think it's quite interesting. Mm -hmm. Okay. So we're going to try to keep this brief. 
But basically, you know, um, computers have been around for a while. Some point to like World War II era as kind of the beginning of things that looked like the modern computers that we know of now. Mm-hmm. Um, and people, ever since people have been making computers, they've needed software to actually run those computers in some form or another. So, and I'm not going to go into the, the whole history of coding, but basically around 1969, 1970, the, the um, AT&T Bell Labs, which was one company at the time, they were developing an operating system called, that came to be called Unix. And uh, just for the, for the real, not technical amongst us, an operating system is a fundamental layer of software that you put on a computing device, whether it's your desktop PC or your laptop or your smartphone or all kinds of other things. And it's like the base code. So the operating system is... When, when you turn the thing on, mm-hmm. the software which is running when it turns on is the operating system. Mm. And all of the other software that you run on that device has to sit on top of and plug into and right. work with the operating system right. that's there. Including you. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Meaning the user has to interact with the operating system in order to interact with programs. Is, totally. my, is my understanding. It's kind yeah. of a middleman between you and any application that you would use. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And something that is not necessarily apparent to the user is that the operating system provides a lot of the raw materials that the software gives you. So, for example, when a software is running on your computer, it does have a certain amount of its visual look, which it has provided itself. But a lot of it comes directly from the operating system. And the operating system generates a lot of these kind of low-level utilities, which allow this higher-level, more sophisticated software to run properly. Mm-hmm. So, so, uh, so Unix was an operating system. And one of the fascinating things about Unix was that uh, a few years into its development, they rewrote it in the C programming language. Now, this wasn't a common thing that happened at the time. A lot of people at that time and beforehand were writing operating systems that interfaced directly with the hardware that they were going to be on. Mm-hmm. So in other words, someone would, they would conceive of a computer, whatever it was, some model of computer, and they would write an operating system directly for that machine. Mm-hmm. And so what was happening was that operating system was taking, it was, it was written in a language which translated from human language into machine-level instructions mm-hmm. that powered the thing. So the interesting thing about writing an operating system in a programming language was that it was not a machine language. It was not designed for any one particular machine. Mm-hmm. It was designed to, in theory, you could run this software on any device. Right. And so that was a really interesting right, thing that they right. did. Because usually 
hardware, when you're writing a program back then, you would write it for a certain processor, a certain set of RAM, a certain type of memory, um, a certain type of storage, and it would have to interface with all those and and keep their specifics in mind of that particular hardware implementation. But yeah, so like Windows can run on any type of laptop, whether it has an AMD processor, an Intel processor, and any of those models, right? Yeah. Um, more or less, right? Like, it's not going to run the on most anything. most popular ones. But, yeah, yeah, the ones that are manufactured, you know, in order to kind of fit that use case. But Right. Yeah. Exactly. And so, this was, it was kind of a novel idea at the time to write, to, to have an idea that an operating system could be ported to all kinds of different devices. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's one of the reasons that Unix became, in some ways, kind of like the the grandparent of a lot of modern operating systems mm-hmm. today. Yeah. So, yeah, so they're working on Unix, and they quickly realized, like, man, this Unix thing's really cool. Mm-hmm. So around, by the end of the decade, there was another main variant. This is kind of like the AT&T slash Bell Labs Unix, right? Right. And then uh, midway through the 80s, uh, uh, sorry, midway through the 70s, the Berkeley, the school in California, started working on their own variant. Right. And so this, they forked it, essentially, which is in in software, that means when you take a software that's in development and you copy the code in part or in whole, and then you just start working on it. Yeah, adding the things you want to it and modifying right. it to yeah. Uh-huh. And it's basically it like a family tree. It's like it's like you literally took a like you cut a branch off of a tree mm-hmm. and you planted that and you started a whole new tree. So yeah. oftentimes when you fork a project as like a completely different team, sometimes they end up sharing between them. And that's actually what happened yeah. with AT&T version versus what they called the Berkeley software distribution, mm-hmm. which was the Berkeley Unix, was that they were they were, were kind of separated, but then over time they incorporated a lot of similar features right. because both of their user bases wanted those features. Yeah. So um so those were the main two variants of Unix for a long time. But as time went on, there were just more and more. So in the 80s, there were all kinds of Unices running around ibm was developing one um sun microsystems mm-hmm. had a popular version of unix and it was really there was just kind of like this proliferation happening and the interesting thing was that as time went on more and more corporate interests and just large institutional interests came along and realized boy there's big money in operating systems. Everyone needs one. And we don't particularly want for our stuff to get taken and used by somebody else. Mm-hmm. And so, um, and maybe you can shed a little bit of light on this, Robin, but the impression I get is that the further back you go in the world of software, the less kind of jealous and covetous people tended to be about their software. You know, I just went to this tech meetup last night and I was asking some of the older tech veterans kind of like, you know, what do you think of open source and, you know, should people who aren't programmers care and stuff like that. But one of the things they said, and 
one of the things one of the guys said, I should say, is that basically open source was kind of the original way of thinking about software. Okay. Yeah. Um, I think the basic, he, he mentioned the basic programming language yeah. as being an example. And that basic was basically, it, it was there for everybody, no pun intended. And <laughs> so, so the people who developed that just weren't even thinking about Is monetizing. It, based on what he said, I haven't verified that. Right. Um, and so people could take it and make their own variants. And he said that actually Bill Gates and one of his partners at the time actually took it and made their own flavor of it and then made it proprietary and, okay. and closed it. Right, and Got then it. would like pursue legal action if other people used it in an open source way. <laughs> I have heard that Bill Gates was like a notable early proponent of privatizing oh, yeah. software. So this is yeah. like the the big fight back then was mm-hmm. basically, um, it was him trying to kind of dominate and and be a profiteer off of software and make mm-hmm. it um, close source. And then there's Richard Stallman, who's trying to make everything open. And those right. are the two kind of like figureheads I think of in terms of like representing the different sides of the battle. It's like the Godzilla and Mothra of the, <laughs> of the great software divide, right? Yeah. So I'm glad you mentioned Richard Stallman. Let's talk about him briefly. Mm-hmm. Stallman was working. Um, so he, he was basically working at several different institutions and he was just like a young and quite brilliant software developer mm-hmm. who was really at the forefront of a lot of these developments. And he developed a particular distaste for what he saw as this kind of increasing march of proprietary philosophy in software. And as, as people started to do even simple things, like, for example, uh, in one of the institutions he worked in, when he started there, the computers were just, they were unsecured, right? So you could just walk up to a terminal and the command line was just right there. Mm-hmm. And you had basically administrator access. Right. There's no username or password. Right. Yeah. And so, you know, it's like you, like any user who was standing at that particular terminal was like, had godlike power over what right. happened on that They could system. just delete everything on the disk if they wanted to. Totally. They could do whatever <laughs> they wanted, right? Yeah. And it was this kind of, um, you know, it was this kind of innocent, like Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden mm-hmm. kind of a time. Mm-hmm right mm-hmm. and and a lot of the software developers at the time just kind of took that for granted and then what started to happen is over the years these institutions started to tighten down and they started to create user accounts with different privileges and then each user would have their own password and mm-hmm. they would have limitations in what they could do and right. richard stallman hated this yeah when listening to him talk <laughs> He uses a strongly moralistic language. Oh, absolutely. And I was just watching the documentary last night, OS Revolution, and and just kind of jotting down the type of language that he would use. And he constantly was using words like domination and control Mm -hmm. and like good and bad. And Mm -hmm. (laughs) just Mm -hmm. like to him, software is a very moral world, a very moralistic world. And to most software developers it's a it's a it's a technical world and it's a it's a world that consists of problems that need to be solved yeah and so whether or not you have a strong ethical slant one way or the other on what should be done with software and how it should be shared 
most programmers at the end of the day just want to save time and write things, solve things quickly. Yeah. And open source definitely lends itself to that more. And I think that's actually the force behind a lot of open source stuff is that, you know, someone writes a, a little program that's useful and it solves a problem that solves, it solves a problem maybe better than has been, it, it's been solved before. Yeah. And they don't really want to go through the effort of making a bunch of money off of it and, and starting a company because in all likelihood it won't succeed. Yeah. And therefore, why not just pay it forward as many tools have been paid forward to them yeah and share it with the community and it's it's cool because and on one level i'm not saying that like even if they could make money maybe there is this other argument that you share things because it quickens the overall pace of progress yeah and technology which is fun yeah. Like everyone wants new shiny things that can do more, right. right? And ever more so with with digital devices. Yeah. And so right, because digital information is easily replicable, right? Yeah. It's practically free to copy software. Mm -hmm. You know, all you need is just, you know, a thumb drive or a network connection or whatever to actually store the copy, yeah. right? But it's effectively can be done effortlessly. Yep. 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 Now, whether or not you'll be able to utilize that source code is a whole nother question. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I just want to highlight something here, which is interesting, is that what you were saying is definitely true that in the software world, there are so many ways to skin a cat. And there are a lot of things that have, you know, cats that have been fairly well skinned. And it's, it's very effortless to spread that information around. And so it really does save a lot of time and help innovation to share, right? However, this runs counter to the narrative of the way things work in capitalism, right? Which is mm -hmm. that that proprietary nature and ownership and competition are what spur development. So I just, I want to contrast those two philosophies, right? Because here we have an example of a system which in some ways works much more efficiently and creates development and innovation much, much more rapidly mm -hmm. when it is not proprietary, when it is shared freely. So one of my main questions to the software developers I met with last night was, why should people care? Why should non-software developers care? Yeah. And I don't think anyone gave me a really strong answer. And I think here's why. <laughs> you could take an ideological stance on it, but that's mm -hmm. all it's going to be. Mm -hmm. Because at the end of the day, for the most part, unless you're working for a large corporation, the type, if you're a software developer, most of the tools you use and most of the software that you're using to build your project are free and yeah. open source. Mm -hmm. What you get paid for is making something that faces users, right? making a tool that faces users that is unique, and you put 
those different open source solutions and, and software pieces together in a way that's useful enough and new enough that people are actually willing to pay for or that advertisers are willing to be, you know, willing to pay you in order to be exposed to your users on. Right. 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 And so like, and, and for the most part, applications aren't, I don't think are so much open source. Right. Yeah. It's, it's more like the building blocks that create applications are open source, which is very different. So like a, a database, a library, um, some very fundamental things that the average user wouldn't be able to recognize. No. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I just, I think this is a lot of the tension that you see in the modern software industry is how much is free versus how much is proprietary. Mm-hmm. And it is interesting because I was just going to say, if everything's free, then there's very little economic incentive for large companies to put a lot of money into mm-hmm. developing software, right? Yeah. So on the one hand, the the capitalistic incentive of a of a company or a corporation to make money does drive a heck of a lot of development, mm-hmm. right? But then free sharing of software also drives a lot of development. So I think that that's part of the interesting tension that we're mm. dealing with, right? Which is what makes it not... Because when people a, get paid to do things, they do more of it. Definitely. Yeah. You know, because if, if a But coder, when people don't have to pay for things, they use more of it. Correct. Yeah. So, huh. like, if a coder wasn't, was getting paid zero dollars to code... How many hours of the week would they be coding? Probably not very many. Comp- you know, I, I mean, some people probably would anyway, right? But, yeah, a lot of people. <laughs> yeah, but, yeah. you know, it's, it's like the people who are coding 40 plus hours a week are usually the people no. getting paid yeah. to do it. Yeah, yeah. There are occasional rare people who <laughs> will just code all the time. You know, and I think yeah. Linus Torvalds is definitely one of those, right? Yeah. Where, he wanted to create things, and that was his passion, right? So let's talk about that briefly. Okay, so let's let's rewind to the mid-'80s. Richard Stallman, who, by the way, if any of this interests you, you should just look up Richard Stallman. Mm. He is a character. Yeah, he is. He's just, <laughs> he's entertaining. He has, he's very eloquent in a certain kind of a way. Mm-hmm. Like Robin outlined, he uses a very ethically charged language Mm -hmm. and he believes down to the like every last cell in his body is committed yeah to free software right so in 1984 he started the uh he he started working on this project called gnu and um it was a uh, it was an example of coda humor the name of this software so one one of the things that coders like to do, you know, they're kind of smart people who like jokes as much as anyone else does. So a lot of free software is named using these self-recursive acronyms. Mm-hmm. So GNU, G-N-U, stands for GNU's Not Unix. Mm-hmm. And so this was a little coder joke. And yeah, because the G in GNU stands for... GNU, GNU. <laughs> exactly, which stands for GNU is not lin- yeah, yeah. So, recursion is kind of hard to explain on on the air. Yeah, but, exactly. Yeah. but it's it's like a if if you think about it too much, you go down in these little fractal mm-hmm. fractal chains, right? 
But anyway, so, so, and his idea was that he wanted to make a version of Unix that was free and open source. So he wanted for anyone to be able to, to get Unix, install it on their computer, and do whatever they wanted with it. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then in 1985, he was one of the people who started the Free Software Foundation, which is probably like the first acknowledged body that was really devoted specifically to the propagation of free software. Mm-hmm. Now, they've been responsible for a lot of things that we're not going to go into here, but suffice it to say that it was a very formative organization in the world of free software. Mm-hmm. So the, the GNU system was Stallman's effort to, like I said, recreate Unix. And what he started to do and his team was doing was they were creating a lot of the different building blocks of the Unix operating system from scratch Mm -hmm. because they weren't allowed to use the code that existed already. So it took a lot of work. And so work continued on this from 1984 to around 1990. And they'd made a lot of progress, but one thing that they were lacking was the kernel. Right. So, Robin, can you explain what a kernel is? Oh, God. Is? <laughs> <laughs> I've been studying for this question, more or less. Excellent. So, the kernel, a, a lot of what an operating system does, aside from the kernel first, is mm. it, it deals with how to allocate instructions from applications to the processor and how to allocate memory to different programs. Yeah. And then... The kernel mostly deals with, if I understand it correctly, is input-output, and that would include determining what should be sent to your monitor and determining how to handle keyboard and mouse inputs, Mm. how to handle network connections, Mm -hmm. right? If you have Ethernet plugged into your computer, the kernel basically has to be able to take the impulses traveling into your Ethernet hub and then process that into usable data, mm. right? Um, and so that's the kernel, as far as I understand it. It's like the nervous system of a computer, right? I, I, <laughs> isn't it all? Like, uh, maybe, maybe. <laughs> I don't yeah. know. I can't, I can't quickly create a metaphor for the kernel. Um, right. Except, I mean, I guess you're right. The nervous system is kind of it, you know you se- the nervous system sends signals to your muscles to do stuff and that yeah. ca- in the case of a computer something that it does is it sends signals to the the monitor that's something it does right yeah. for the user yeah um, and then it takes signals in from currently our microphones yeah right keyboard mouse um and the network mm-hmm. and i don't know what else it would take input you know if you had a printer that'd mm-hmm. be another input output device something mm-hmm. like that so yeah, and there are a lot of basic drivers. So this word in, in computers, drivers, mm. is like a specific set of software to make a specific piece of hardware work mm. in your operating system. Okay. So there's a lot of these base-level drivers are built into a kernel as well. Okay. So, so that's technically, if I, if I install a printer driver, is that part of my kernel? Or? No, I, I think like an additional driver that you install... It's like it's like standalone software, but there's a lot of basic like 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 you were saying, like the driver that your mouse runs on might be in the kernel. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's a lot of like very, very, very basic drivers, Mm -hmm. um, which 
which we just kind of take for granted. Yeah. You know, just things like uh, what makes your hard drive work or yeah. stuff like that, which I believe is in the kernel. Now, this all gets very technical. So if you want to learn more about it, I would just research what a software kernel actually is. Yeah. But suffice it to say that the GNU project did not have one. And so in around 1990, this guy named Linus Torvalds, who he was like a young guy, I think he was still a student at the time. He was, yeah. In Finland, mm -hmm. um, started working on a kernel. And he called it the Linux kernel. And it was kind of like a portmanteau of his name in Unix, right? right? And... Um, managed kind of miraculously to do a large amount of of work on this linux kernel in a very small amount of time mm -hmm. and he really just like bootstrapped this project mm -hmm. and submitted it to the gnu project and said you needed a kernel there's a kernel yeah Several other well, people. He didn't actually send it to them. He just released it. I guess he just he, he just, just kind of like put it out on it. the interwebs, right? Right. And it was kind of the missing piece, though, to yeah. the GNU because the GNU wasn't a full operating system yet because it right. needed the kernel. He wrote a kernel that worked for it, mm -hmm. and then people were like, "Oh, I guess GNU's basically done if we just include Linux's stuff." And yeah. so then you have this operating system yeah right yeah now to richard stallman's eternal dismay as well as many other people <laughs> um, the the operating system ended up being called linux well <laughs> so i looked into this a little bit yeah and it's a little bit fuzzy okay because i i'm not exactly sure like, whatever distribution of Linux you use, since it is open source, a lot of people would take, like, the original um, open source version of Linux, and they would modify it and create their own what's called a distribution or yeah. distro. Mm -hmm. And some of those distros, I think, rely heavily on the GNU components, and others don't. Mm, they've kind of moved away from it. Yeah. yeah. And so, I don't know exactly which ones fall into it and which ones don't or which yeah. ones use GNU and which ones don't but it is I guess a lot of people think it's best practice to refer if you're using a Unix operating system quote unquote then you should call it GNU slash Linux right which you know Richard Stallman and a bunch of other people worked on GNU for many years mm -hmm. and then it seemed like Linux came in and just kind of like took the cake you know like <laughs> what's a better expression but yeah now isn't that interesting though because again we're coming into the concepts of ownership yeah right right right, <laughs> so right right there's a fundamental irony to richard stallman <laughs> getting butthurt about his project getting named after somebody else well like i said earlier like there's economic gains and then there's like the social there's the identity and 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 getting status right right and, and people put a lot of blood and sweat into that so yeah, yeah yeah so you know even even the founder of the free software movement in many ways that's a very good point he's not free <laughs> of his ideological attachment to his ideas sure so um so basically after this happened this magical linux kernel and the, and the gnu uh it, it just really created an explosion of free open source operating systems and the the number of operating systems based around the Linux kernel now is like, I mean, it might even be in the millions 
but it's certainly hundreds of thousands of different operating systems. And they run on every device imaginable. Mm -hmm. And so your smartphone is running on some version of Linux. It, okay, I always forget. Is an iPhone, is it running on a version of Unix or a version of Linux? Uh, that's a good question. I actually don't know. I thought I think it I don't might know what the be basis some of like iOS modified is. version of Unix or something. But yeah. Anyway, Androids are definitely Linux-based. Linux and so I think are um, Kindles. Yeah. Yeah. And there are just all kinds of things like your smart TV is probably running a version of Linux. Yep. There are even much more basic devices like uh, you know, like a digital toaster or whatever that mm. might be running a version yep, of yep, Linux. Yep, 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 yeah. And so one of the magic things about Linux and just about kind of Unix-like, they call them Unix-like operating systems in general, is that it's like the it's like the Borg operating system. It can really be tailored to just about anything. Yeah. And one of the beauties of it is that it's a very modular system. And so what you can do is you can take the Linux kernel and you can just cut massive swaths out of it and say, we don't need any of this functionality. Mm. We're just going to have like a very tailored piece of software. Yeah. And um, and it's cool because it's still more efficient than writing it from scratch. Right. And it's just a really, I mean, it boggles the mind to consider just how high of a percentage of devices in the world these days run some variant of Linux or Unix yeah. or something like that. Mm -hmm. And um, I think the most impressive stat is that the vast majority of the computers that run the internet run some version. Like servers. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So the chances are whatever device you're using to listen to this information was delivered the information via a long relay of hundreds or thousands of miles of different Unix-equipped computers. Yeah. And your device could very well be some kind of Unix Probably. computer. Yeah. Right? So <laughs> yeah. that's, that is just to convey the scale and the breadth and the utter dominance mm -hmm. of this particular operating system. Mm -hmm. It's like, I mean, it caught on like wildfire. Mm -hmm. And today it's still an operating system of choice for many computer applications that are not specifically running a windows computer or running an apple computer right actually the apple computer now runs a variant of unix yep 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 yeah, yeah. so um, <laughs> windows is actually like one of the only major completely not unix like operating systems yeah. in the world which is quite interesting yeah Yep. And a um, testament to just how committed to proprietary software Bill Gates actually was. Yeah. Now, I want to do a quick musical interlude, but okay. when we come back, I kind of wanted to break into whether or not open source really means what I hope it means, which is a democratization of information technology mm. and all of the, the tools and powers that come with that. Mm hmm. Stay tuned. <laughs> Ha <laughs> ha
And we're back. Hopefully you enjoyed that pleasant musical interlude. And yeah, Robin, I'm curious to hear about your next topic here. Okay, so one of the big questions I've always had about open source, and one of my big hopes for it, has always been that people who aren't professional programmers would be able to take open source tools and software and be able to cobble things together and make something new. Mm, and okay. useful to them. Mm-hmm. And I I have always thought that that was sort of possible. And I'm still relatively green as a developer. And so I thought I would just bounce that question off of the developers I ran into last night who are much more seasoned than me. And they were, they were all kind of like, hmm, yeah. Like, you know, it takes like 10,000 hours to master things. And like... <laughs> Kind of like, it definitely isn't um, a quick thing to be able to do, right? Mm -hmm. Like, just because, say, someone made their artificial intelligence library open source doesn't mean that anyone can just go start doing artificial intelligence stuff with it. Right. Like, there's a certain base level of knowledge you have to have about software development to be able to use any of these things. Sure. Now, there's, that's definitely a barrier, but I... I think that people could still take a couple of courses or or free courses online and learn enough to be able to start using small things and and putting them together. But another piece that's needed, aside from just having your, if you just put your source code out there on the internet and make it available to people and add a license to it, like the GPL, Mm -hmm. I think that there needs to actually be a greater level of ambassadorship if there's going to be. true access for Mm. non-professional developers to be able to use things okay um because i do think on some level if you're using a program that consists of say a couple of thousand of thousand lines of code Mm -hmm. and say java or python or javascript um I think most people are capable of actually learning enough of those languages in, in a few months and reading the source code that they can modify that program to do what they want. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that for anything more complex that's a lot longer, you actually need a little bit of hand-holding from the developer and a little bit of an explanation of how the thing works and, yeah. and how to do the things you might want to do with it. Mm-hmm. And that is a lot, lot harder come by Mm -hmm. (laughs) and the software world i guess is called documentation is how well you document what your software is and what it does and and what the api is and how to interact with it and from my own experience it's most of this open source stuff is it's basically you're expected to go in and read the source code you know there's there's not there's no quick how to there's no quick oh if you want to do this look here it's you know roll up your sleeves and start reading um, and start trying to, because there's no even overview about what the different um, files and folders and what the, what the structure of the project even means. You have to have a certain amount of experience to be able to interpret that. Mm -hmm. And so I think we're a far cry from that sort of democratization that I used to, that I think, when people said open source back in my college days, that's what I fantasized about was, yeah. oh, okay, I can take um, 
you know, vision open, like AI vision technology that's open source and I can mm -hmm. use it and, and identify plants if I wanted to, mm -hmm. by just modifying somebody else's program, um, you know, maybe talk to me in three or four years and see how that's going. Like, <laughs> well, and so. I think, I think what you're getting at here is the distinction between low level and high level, right? So why don't we talk about that for a moment? Because I think a lot of developers fantasize about one day having tools which are high level enough mm. that people really can just like put together the build, you know, like the average person could open up like a software creator and like drag things around yeah. and, you know, specify in a fairly easy and linear way what they wanted it to do and have all of the underlying code just configure itself, right? Mm-hmm. So why don't you talk to us a just a little bit about like low level versus high level? Hmm. Uh, well, I think like you described maybe the highest level of development that you could ever have, which is yeah. kind of like a GUI, you know, like you drag and drop modules like spatially. And, uh, mm -hmm. you know, I've actually done web development, like WordPress, some WordPress, um, what do they call them? Plugins or themes or something Yeah, where you basically can take components that are visually represented and drag them around on the screen mm -hmm. instead of writing HTML and CSS and mm -hmm. um, figuring out the layout that way. And right. so that's a very high level mm -hmm. thing and low level, basically low level means you're getting closer and closer to the machine language yeah. is the way I think of it. And high level means you're getting closer and closer to the way that humans actually think about things right. or closer to human spoken language. Right. Um, which even the highest level coding languages are still coding languages at the end of the day. You know, we yeah, don't talk like, like that. People aren't, there aren't coding languages that say like, computer, first I want you to load this up, then I want you to do this. They're inflexible, like, right? Yeah. Yeah. Which is, it's remarkable. I was thinking about voice commands the other day. Mm. And there's probably, there's various ways that you can tell Google to like, remember to, 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 to like save a date. Right. Yeah. And it's kind of flexible. It's like, oh, you know, there's certain keywords that all will kind of work. But with right. most programming languages, there's only one. There's one way <laughs> there's to do it. A single right. keyword. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. if you don't use it right, then it could, the program won't work. So, yeah. Um, yeah. I don't know. That's, that's a quick rundown of it. But yeah. I do, I, I, th I think I'm at the point now where I realize that. If anyone does want to utilize open source stuff, and there's like little like like maker spaces and like doing maker type projects, there's it's a small enough scale that you can take source code and do something with it. If you want to just say um, change the way like a, a motor rotates, right, or mm. change the way like a little like kind of crafty um, small scale project works, it's pretty easy to like take that and read the source code and understand it and mm. and modify it but um you know the bigger and more complex an application the much more experience is needed so sure yeah sure it's just just the nature of of the complexity of this technology there's no mm -hmm. easy end so mm -hmm. sure yeah but it does it does get easier over time generally yeah and people have gotten better at making things a bit higher level making them a bit more modular yep know so yep, I, yep. and and it, it that trend shows every evidence of continuing in that way mm -hmm. so i think it's like each year 
is like a better year to be a starting coder than the previous one. Uh, yeah, probably. I think I generally agree with that. Yeah. Um, I remember reading a book called Just for Fun, which is by Linus Torvalds and mm-hmm. some other like probably ghost writer. But um, he was saying he was writing a lot of stuff in assembly language, which is much closer to the machine code. Mm-hmm. And he was saying when he like if he would have written it in C, it probably would have been a hundred times faster. <laughs> wow, really? <laughs> yeah, that's goes that goes counter to what I thought you were going to say. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, do you mean the code runs more no, no, efficiently? No. It would have been a hundred times more efficient in terms of the time he time. put into it. That's, yeah, that's what I thought. But he yeah. wrote it in assembly language. Well, because... C was just kind of burgeoning back when he was learning this okay. stuff too. It okay. is the way he kind so of put he, it. So, so he could have chosen. He, he C. could have. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And perhaps regretted not choosing C. Well, I guess so. <laughs> yeah. 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 So, okay, so we're getting towards the end here, but before we go, Robin, I just wanted to ask you, because you actually work in software. I'm, I'm an expert. Okay, so how motivated would you feel to share code that you had worked on in your own free time with the world for free? Pretty motivated, mostly. Mm-hmm. I think it, it depends on what I was making, is, is maybe the short answer. Sure. Because... Um, for example, like I'm working on a personal project right now. That's mostly just for, it's an excuse for me to learn new things and to build new stuff. It's a flashcards app, but so it's like, there's tons of flashcards apps out there. And, you know, the idea of me working on that, and I've thought about monetizing it where like, you know, there's certain features that are free. And if you want like nice convenient features and you might have to pay like whatever, a dollar a month or whatever. And I don't, I mean, I don't think I'm going to get rich off of that anyway. And so mm-hmm. the idea of making it open source doesn't really bother me. Mm-hmm. And also, you, ha- you have to think about the benefits of making it open source. The benefits are great, especially for someone like me who's earlier in their development career. Because what it does is it exposes your code to a mm. community and there's basically this community review process at that point where people yeah. will look at the code and then suggest changes and and try to commit their own changes to it which is at the end of the day it's a, it's a critique on the way that you design things in the first place and so you yeah. get to go and look at what other in the most cases people who have the resources and ability to do that are going to be smarter more experienced more proficient coders than I am anyway mm-hmm. and being able to see their suggestions would be very valuable and yeah. so the I- idea of someone like me being covetous of their source code for a project like this is is kind of ridiculous <laughs> yeah <laughs> okay so let me ask you a different question uh-huh let's say that you let's say that you went into your job as a software developer mm-hmm. and you know like at the beginning of your work shift your boss said okay robin so you're gonna work eight hours today we're gonna pay you for four of those hours and mm. they're gonna go towards this one project and then for the second four hours of your day it's going to be your volunteer time towards this other project hmm. how would you feel about that what other pro- like what 
just whatever I want <laughs> for the the volunteer project or sure yeah. yeah it could be whatever you wanted but it's some software is it open source or yeah yeah it was open source you know and it was gonna be freely available and help it other sounds people like a dream <laughs> Okay, but yeah. you, but you'd only be pay, you'd only be getting paid fifty percent. Oh, wait, <laughs> right? hold on. Yeah. <laughs> so, in other words, you'd spend half of your time at that job earning money, mm-hmm. and then the other half of your time would be donating your coding time. Mm. So, after a forty-hour week at this company, you would have spent twenty hours earning money. And the other half of it, you would be donating and paying it forward. This sounds questionable. How would you, how would you feel about that? <laughs> That's kind of hard to wrap my head around. But I guess if, it was, if I could work on anything I wanted for that last four hours, mm-hmm. that sounds fun. I don't, I, the thing is, the pay, like, I don't like the idea of coding for eight hours a day without getting paid for all of it, frankly. Okay. Because after four to five hours of coding, it gets kind of hard. You know, your mind gets a little bit mushy around yeah. six hours, anywhere from four to six hours. You know, it's a toss up. Like, sometimes it's great and you're still cranking out stuff and you're focused. And mm-hmm. other times it's just, you can't hold a thought, right? Yeah. After that amount of time. And so um, maybe if we reduce the shift to six hours and said three hours is for them and three hours is for whatever I want. I don't know. I guess, I guess what, like, what are you asking me to prioritize or like evaluate? I guess I'm just curious about the idea that, you know, so Richard Stallman wants all software to be free, mm-hmm. right? And it's not that selling software is the only way of making money off of software, but I just think that it's interesting to actually pose the question to a software developer mm-hmm. and to just get your sense of like, how much of this work would you be happy to do on your own time with nobody paying? Oh, I see what you're asking. Okay. Now, if they said, okay, because there's, I think that's a different question Mm -hmm. because being mandated to volunteer at work is what the way it sounded at first. Yeah. Where I have to volunteer for half of my shift and just, do things yeah without and getting paid that was i would be kind of suggesting. frustrated with that yeah <laughs> yeah but occasionally you know right now i'm doing a lot of projects that i'm not getting paid for and i'm mm-hmm. writing a lot of code that i'm not getting paid for mm-hmm. um and i can do that for a certain amount of time a day but i don't do it for eight hours yeah <laughs> i do it for probably cl- anywhere from three to five you know yeah, so yeah. so like you as a coder, you do have a general interest in working on projects that might not generate you any money that yeah, you would definitely. you would be happy yeah. to share the code. No, for. definitely, because yeah. it's it's fun. Yeah. It's a craft. Mm-hmm. You get you make things. Mm-hmm. You know, you you write code, you run the code, you see if it does the thing you wanted it to do. It's this fun iterative design process. Right. Um, that I find rewarding. Mm-hmm. You know, if mm-hmm. you, you know, you want to, whether it's programming motors and lights and sensors or programming some kind of web interface or just design stuff on a web page, um, I find it fun. Mm-hmm. So, and uh, 
This is the impression I get is that a majority of people who do work on free software probably they spend X amount of hours during the week working on software they're getting paid for, and then they spend X amount of hours during the week working on software they're not getting paid for. Right, and I think that's probably true. Like,、mm-hmm. um, I'm trying to remember what was the example. Oh yeah. Unix, Unix was created that way.、Mm. So, and you, the two guys that created Unix, I don't remember their names, but they were working for AT and T and Bell Labs, and officially they were working on this other operating system that that they ended up developing a distaste for. <laughs> and the, on their own time, they created Unix. Oh, okay, okay, I didn't know. <laughs> Is my understanding.、Mm-hmm. And. I guess it, you know, I I don't know how much I can say on their own time because it ended up being property of that corporation. But、yeah. at least they maybe spearheaded that project on their own. And, right. Um. So, yeah, I don't know. It's it just depends on the developer. Um. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. A, a final thing I wanted to say is that there are plenty of people who work on free software and get paid for it, and that's just because. There are a lot of different models for monetization which can allow that to happen.、Mm-hmm. So one of the the most popular models is people who will work on free software and they'll sell services for the software. They'll sell support for it. They will sell、um, focused customization. So for example, let's say there's a company that wants to get into providing cloud services. Right? They want to to、um, Run these kind of large distributed services for lots of users to store data, or you know whatever. And this company is probably going to pick some kind of software that might be free, right? And there are a lot of of software companies out there that will say, "Yeah, you guys could just take our software and download it and do whatever you want with it. That's great. Run your company that way." However, we've spent. X number of tens of thousands of hours developing this, and we know it really well. And it would probably save you money、mm-hmm. instead of having to have all of your developers work on it and do all the stuff.、Yep. We're just going to show you how to do it exactly. And you know, we'll make a contract with you, and we'll do some customization. You know, we'll write some custom software for you. Yeah, we'll tweak it. We'll also support you. Yeah, with any technical difficulties. Right. So, so the, there was a company a of... called Cygnus that did that、mm, okay. with the GNU system. Yeah, and I think that's actually kind of the magic place to be,、mm-hmm. is because they're going to be in, they're going to have fierce competition because anyone can do that. Anyone can take the open source software and become distributors of it, and also support staff that they're getting paid to do it, right? And so they have to do a good job at it,、yeah. but. It's not always beneficial for any company to just take open source software and assume that they can just get everything done with it they want that they want to without support. And so,、yeah. the way one of the gentlemen I was talking to last night, and maybe I'll get his name to you later. He has some good points. One of the points he made was,、uh, he said, "Think about your computer and like what is the most valuable part of that computer." And I was like, "For mine, it's the graphics card." And he's like, "No." It's the operator's time.、Mm, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> and his point was that you can take open source stuff and do whatever you want with it, but if you don't have any official support and you don't have anyone to call when shit hits the fan or when things aren't working, 
then you're probably going to end up wasting a lot of time troubleshooting that. Yeah. And so actually finding open source stuff that does have paid support is actually kind of a best of both wor- both worlds, in my opinion, especially if, yeah. you, if you have some software chops and you can do a little bit of troubleshooting on your own. And if you don't have the resources, then you have that paid support. Yeah. And it, it's kind of a beautiful thing because what it allows you to do is that like Joe Schmo can download it for free and have fun with it, right? Yeah. Maybe run like a small business or just set up a home server or do what, you know, whatever <clears throat> it is that they want to do have. And, and that's great. You know, you, you just help Joe Schmo for free, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and you can also have a company like Amazon take something and spend billions of dollars on it and make, you know, a number of software companies fairly wealthy in the process. And it, so it, it does kind of check both boxes, and it's a cool model. Mm-hmm. Now, there are, there are many other models that people have, which we're not going to get into here. But I just think that it's what this all comes back to for me is, is what's valuable to a culture, who owns what. And, and ultimately, this is all subjective. We make it all up, right? And... That's just really, really interesting to me is that so much of the productivity of our world is based around these very, very basic distinctions. Who owns a thing? Who gets access to resources? Why do they get access to resources? Mm-hmm. What do, do we as a culture collectively agree upon as our values? Mm-hmm. And who eats and who starves, depending on how those values are. are play out Mm -hmm. right and i think that software is just a very interesting case to examine because i think that it covers some very interesting territory that a lot of other commodities don't necessarily Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and as we go into an increasingly digital world the question which the recording industry has had to ask itself and the question that many media industries have had to ask themselves and the software industry and uh, you know, anything that can happen on the computer has to ask itself, I'm easily replicable. And so how do we deal with that in the face of the fact that a lot of our models are based on scarcity, right? When you can just take something and infinitely replicate it for, for almost no cost, mm. how do we reconcile that against the supply and demand scarcity model that we're used to? Because up until now, most things in the world have not been unlimited resources right so and i don't have an answer to any of these questions it's just that it's this is like the philosophical bedrock of of a new era that we're moving into and yeah and i do think that it it matters to the average person not that they're necessarily going to think about it right just like politics or just like climate change or whatever right but these things they do matter and yeah. they do work upon you, and they yeah. do affect you. And my hope is that by listening to this episode, it has taken you at least one step deeper into that inquiry. Right, yeah. And hopefully, I'll, I keep hoping that we'll be able to better utilize open source stuff, that everyday people, with, mm-hmm. without having a strong specialty, are going to be able to actually utilize this stuff. Yeah. Yeah. But, well. Get on it, buddy. (laughs) (laughs) The future waits for no one.
Thanks for joining us for another episode of Listening Glass. If you've enjoyed this show, we'd love it if you'd share it with your friends and on social media. Your word of mouth means a lot to us and is a way you can help our humble podcast grow. Find us on our Twitter handle at Listening Glass. You can leave feedback there or by emailing us at listeningglasscast at gmail.com. Join the ongoing discussion in our community by joining our Discord server, linked in our episode description. This episode features the track This in Sitter by Mac Woodruff, the track Dr. Beauchef, Penguin Dentist by Kneebody, and also the track Lipton Service Boy by Eero Johannes. We're incredibly grateful to these artists for letting us feature their work. Find more information about them in the episode description. Thank you.